Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. You know me well enough by now to know that I have many, many favourite books, but Atomic Habits by James Clear is indeed one of those favourite books. So I was especially pleased to chat with Kelly and Michael about their book, Project Habit. Inspired by Atomic Habits, they explored the motion and action habits that make the difference in project-based learning. The book helps teachers to get the balance between motion and action. I had to resist the temptation to follow the many different threads and connected ideas in this conversation, but I hope you enjoy. Michael and Kelly, it's great um, It's great to meet you and I'm very grateful to you for making the time to have this conversation today. Um, I wonder if we can start with introductions and ask maybe each of you just to, to say hello and say a little bit about yourself. Um, Kelly, can I ask you to go first? Sure, thanks. Uh, my name is Kelly Miller and I work in California. I, I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a hybrid human these days. I, I consult, I write, I work with the Core Collaborative. I just wrote this book with Michael about project-based learning. I also work in the school district in my community and um, in that capacity, I'm a district level instructional coach. And I'm a mom and I have kids and I carpool and, um, that, that's always informing how I approach education as I watch my own kids grow and I see their peers around them. Yeah, I love I love the way you describe that. They're a hybrid individual. It's a good way yeah, yeah, yeah. We could say we wear a lot of hats or I, I have my foot in this and I have my other foot in the <laughs> other. But um, today I'll say I'm a hybrid. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. And Michael, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, I also do carpooling. Um, I have uh, children and um, yeah, I write, uh, I get to travel and work with schools all around the world, which is, which is great. My background, I was a, I was a high school math and science teacher and principal and superintendent, assistant superintendent, did all sorts of um, pretty interesting positions. And now I get to travel around the world and, and work with really awesome people like Kelly and do podcasts with you, Sarah. So yeah. And, and, and do the parenting part, which is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's good to have lots of different perspectives and different roles, I think, isn't it? It kind of helps us to, to I was going to say reality check, which maybe sounds a little bit negative, but I don't mean it in that sense. But it just gives us that sense of what's going on and how people are feeling and what's coming up in different areas when we're a part of all of that in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think I know when Michael and I were, were writing this book, I often made reference to I just need a writer's cabin in the woods to like get away from it all and focus and really write. On the other hand, if you're writing from a writer's cabin in the woods, you don't have anybody to check your thinking and go, will this really work in a classroom? And will this really work across the school system? So um, yeah, all, all of that input is really important. Absolutely. I just want to meet that educator that's got the, the writing cabin. Like, I don't know who that is, but I'm. it sounds great. It sounds so nice. <laughs> sounds like a great place for a retreat, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with you uh, my afternoon, your morning, um, just to, to explore a little bit around the book that you mentioned, so Project Habits. So I wonder if we can start there. I guess what what prompted the book? What's what's different about the book? Sell it to us. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think a big a big push for both Kelly and I, we both in our background have spent a lot of time with innovative methodologies. And I guess one of the big pulls for us is we wanted to invite everyone into that world. And I think sometimes with problem and project-based learning, it seems a bit 
daunting. And it also seems like not everyone gets to be a part of this experiment, that only certain people get to be selected. Or if you do it, you have to throw everything out that you were doing in the past that 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 weren't as effective as now what we see today. And we really wanted to write a book to say, actually, everyone can be a part of this. And it's small, doable habits. And you're actually doing really great things in the classroom already. And there might be some small, doable things that you can bring in. And that was a really big impetus for both Kelly and I. We thought when we think of you know, inclusion, we want to make sure that that all teachers think, hey, you know, I can do innovative work and I can juxtapose it with some really great things that I'm already doing. And so that was that was a real big impetus, I think, for Kelly and I. Kelly, what do you think? Is there other other things? Uh, well, you you just said my favorite part. And I'd, I'd add that awesome. Michael wrote a book um, some years ago called Rigorous PBL by Design. And when I was in the classroom, that is a book that really shaped um, my master's research. It shaped my what I was doing with my students. I continued to use that as a coach and as a school leader. But as, I mean, Michael, I couldn't tell you how many years ago that book was published. It wasn't so long ago, but you use the word innovation. A lot of what we have been doing, you keep learning new things when you're with other teachers and when you're with students. And there, there was more to be said after a few years, like, oh, this really works, or oh, we really need to be considering this, and we hadn't thought about it the first time because it wasn't as relevant. So uh, there, at, at a certain point, we had a critical mass of those kinds of aha moments that I think needed to be captured in a book. Mm, plus, yeah. plus the great part about inclusion, because that's so important to us, like, everybody needs to be able to do this without, without throwing out everything they've ever done before. That, that feels like an important point because I think there can be a danger that we that we keep bringing in new things and new things and new things and new things and we kind of things drop off the end perhaps unintentionally some okay to drop off some not okay to to drop off and actually I guess one of the things that can happen particularly we know in the world of education is that kind of initiative-itis where it's, oh, there's another thing we have to do and then another thing that we have to do. But it sounds like yours is an, an iteration of something as opposed to another thing to do. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, I think one of the things that I've always been concerned about as an ed educator and working with educators is this whole idea of the pendulum swing, right? Like, oh, we're swinging over here now. Oh, we're swinging over here. And so everything's either or. Everything's either it's got to be super innovative or we're going back to traditional education. Like we just, you know, back to basics. And I think it's really around a both and like, can we stop the pendulum, put it in the middle, find a balanced set of, of pedagogical sound approaches to the things that we're doing for students? And can we also have teachers not feel this whiplash between, oh, COVID's done, let's do innovative work or, oh, we got to go back and we got to make sure that students can you know, just do reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yes, both are important things. And so if we can stop the pendulum and actually say, let's do this work from a balanced standpoint, I think that that just sounds reasonable for most educators. And I think that the initiative-itis, which I love that term, um, <laughs> I think that a big part of that is that pull between these two poles. And I think we need to get away from the two poles and, and sit in the middle. And I think one of the, the challenges of PBL is that it's wrapped around these myths these myths that you have to have, you know, you have to put kids in groups of four or the middle is messy or you only have one situation or a project has to be like four to six weeks or direct instruction isn't, you know, supposed to be a part of PBL. I think all of that is just, um, it's just nonsense. And I think it, it was built as a way of showing a distinction between traditional education. And I, I, I can understand the, the rationale of saying, hey, we want to show a clear distinction between some certain methods. But I think that the messaging was inappropriate. And I think we have to say, look, you can do some innovative work and do direct instruction. Like <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And how are people responding to the book then? Kelly, what, what, do, you, what do you think? I, well, so far I haven't had the critics calling me to tell me where we messed up, Michael. So, so we're in a good spot so far. So far the, um, the response has been really positive and people have been excited about it. And, um, that makes us excited. We we didn't write this so that we could just read it over and over. We, we wrote it so that teachers could use it in their classrooms and leaders, school leaders could use it to think about how they're shaping their systems. So, so far, um, the response has been really good. We, we feel so great about it. Yeah, I think, I think for me, you know, there was, there was two, two key things I was hoping to get out of, of the book that they're going to seem small nuance kind, kinds of critiques or feedback. 
And one was from teachers who had been engaging in a lot of problem and project-based learning. And for them to say, I can actually move my practice forward. Like I actually see where I can grow for teachers who have been doing PBL for years and saying, I never thought of maybe using more than one context or having students generate more of the driving questions instead of me providing students with the driving question. And the second is for teachers who have never done PBL to say, I can see, I, I can see how I could do some of this work within my math class right now. I could do this in kinder or I could do this in fourth grade. I'm not going to do all of it, Michael, but I could start making small doable shifts around that kind of work. And to me, that's great. If I know that a teacher can say, I can bring some of this inquiry-based work in and I can see how it fits with what I'm doing. And now students have that access or a teacher who has been doing PBL and saying, I just need to grow in my expertise. And that's what we're hearing. And that's what I'm hearing as I'm going around um, and working with schools. You know, to me, I'm like, that's great. That's exactly what we're doing it for. Yeah. So yeah, it's been good. Yeah, good. Um, and I guess maybe just for clarity, before we move forward with this conversation, what is PBL? <laughs> just in case anybody's listening, thinking, oh, heck, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's two ways that you could define it. Um, I'll, I'll try both of them and we'll see kind of where they land. I think one is it's an inquiry-based process that begins with some level of challenge for students. And that through this inquiry-based process in which we use a series of questions and instructions, students try to answer that challenging question. Another way to frame it would be to think about levels of learning. Um, so one way of, that we use is we use what's called the solo taxonomy where we use surface meaning students know things deep, they can relate things and transfer, they can apply things. Yeah. So you could think of, I know what a food chain is or a food web deep as I can relate food chains and food webs to understand how energy moves in an ecosystem and transfers. I can apply that. Like what happens if we bring an invasive species into a certain ecosystem or try to reintroduce something in project-based learning. It's about taking transfer and starting the learning with transfer and then ending with transfer. So you bookend your units with transfer. So we start with a challenge, then teach the surface stuff, teach the deep, and then go back into transfer. And so it's a way of thinking about how we structure and sequence levels of complexity. Or another way of thinking about it is we start students off with a big, with a big challenge and then we use inquiry and instruction to help students answer that question. And, and I would add that the mommy in the park version, I'm like, I'm, I'll be drinking coffee with other moms as we're like shoving kids in and out of the door and getting them to the play date. And so I get asked like, okay, Kelly, how how is your book? We're so glad that you wrote it. These are other parents who are not teachers. And I often get asked, can you explain what project-based learning is? And my mommy in the park definition is, anytime kids are learning, they're always thinking, where does this show up in the real world? Mm -hmm. And the second question I get asked is, so it's doing a project, <laughs> which isn't exactly, the, that's not everything that project-based learning entails. There's usually a project somewhere in there, but it's more this approach of, we're not learning something just for the sake of getting from chapter one to chapter two. We're learning something because we want to we want to do something with it. We want to be relevant and we want to learn relevant things that we want to change the world around us. So that's uh, that, that's my mommy version of project based learning. <laughs> and and I think both of those are really helpful because it gives us different ways to hook into what it's about as we as we kind of engage and as we as we listen. Um, I sense there's lots of inspiration in your book from James Clear and Atomic Habits, um, which is a book I know. I certainly read it over the last couple of years and I know many of our listeners and followers on Twitter are also reading Atomic Habits as well. So it's an incredibly popular book at the moment. And I like um, how chapter one starts and it starts with a quote from James, which is that motion will never produce a final result, action will. So can you help us understand what, what does that mean? What does, how does that connect and relate to schools? One way of thinking about it is motion is about planning. Right. Mm -hmm. So motion is I'm planning to do something. So I'm getting I'm, I'm going to shop around for the best gym membership and the best deal. I'm going to get the new shoes. I'm going to get the music so that I'm ready to go and lift weights and all of that work. And that sounds great um, until we actually have to go to the gym. Right. And, and then mm -hmm. and then it starts to become challenging. And the action habit would be doing bench press, doing lunges, doing all of those particular types of things. And what James Clear talked about is that while motion is important and planning and developing things are important it's actually the bench press and the lunges and the things like that that really matter. And we really looked at that and said, wow, when you look at a lot of problem project-based learning, when you look at books, you look at training, you look at what a lot of teachers are, are told and sold, it's a lot of 
build projects, right? Create a library and, and set everything up. And then the challenges is then when we get to the day when we're going to do the project, the action habits that are around it don't normally happen. Um, we kind of set it up for students and then say, okay, go forth. I hope you learn calculus. <laughs> and, the, and the teachers are really usually looking for like, well, what strategy do I use? And what habits do I have from the past that I could bring in? So a lot of our book was to say, look, motion habits are important, but let's be really clear on what they are. And then action habits are really important. Let's be really clear on, on what those are. And let's make sure we're embedded, we're engaging in those particular action habits, because when we don't do those action habits, we don't see the types of results that we want to that we want to see. And so the book was really trying to help teachers outline these are motion and these are action habits. And we need to engage in those action habits over time. Yeah, I, I've had lots of conversations with teachers who want to do the best. They want to do the best thing for their kids. And if they've, if, if they've said we're going to do project based learning, they want to be the best at it. And what they'll ask me is, am I doing it right? And often for some people doing it right means I filled out a really elaborate template and I have checked off a lot of boxes to make sure that I am doing project-based learning. Meanwhile, the teachers are, they're talking with me. I'm a coach. They're not in front of their students. They're not in action yet. And we really wanted to encourage teachers to spend the, the time. It does take time. It's really important to plan and to have, have check all your boxes, but it is more important to get that in front of students and to do things that, as Michael said, are small and doable. You make them easy and ready for yourself and your students so that it becomes just a normal part of your classroom culture. Yeah. We really thought that was an important distinction to make with our book. And, and just, to, just to add, Sarah, I would say, and from the student's viewpoint, it's the same, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes I'll go and I'll see a project presentation and it is just like, it's like beautiful motion. It's like they, like they built the really great volcano or well, their parents built the really great volcano <laughs> and they're like showing the volcano and talking about the volcano, but they're not really actually talking about the problem or the challenge or, you know, having to handle like new situations that might have happened around earth tectonics or, or you know, plate tectonics or, or whatever they might have been looking at around earth processes. They're not actually engaging in action. They've just built some stuff and then they're like presenting it. And so mm -hmm. it's about product and it's about putting kids in groups and it's about just hoping for the best as opposed to like, what are those small doable actions you need to take? This is included in when we think about feedback strategies, feedback should be more work for students than it is for teachers. But often what happens is teachers are in action and then students are in motion. They're just watching the teachers work. And so a lot of what we're trying to do within this book is to help teachers be mindful of that. Are you in action right now while students are in motion? Or did you just spend a ton of time on that motion stuff and now you've built it and it's so elaborate and so big? How could we actually get that into action when you've got, you know, 34 students that are staring at you right now? So the whole idea is trying to help teachers kind of toggle between what's motion, what's action, and how do we lower the threshold to actually engage in some of that action and for students as well? Mm -hmm. And it's I think it's such a helpful distinction. And I think it's really helpful to have the clarity of that distinction, because I think we could recognize that, but actually being able to label it with clarity of motion and action that helps us to do something about it by the very nature that we can identify which one we're in we we can make a decision to do something different whereas if we're not aware of that then we we keep doing the thing whether it's motion or or action 100 sir i mean when we think about it like rubrics are motion oh. right like they have no effect on student learning by themselves so you can laminate clarity all you want, but if you're not living it, it doesn't really matter, right? So it's about how do you move from, how do you move from, I built a rubric, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, to let's get students to actually co-construct what they think they're going to learn, and then what, what they're actually learning. And then they look at, here's what I thought we were learning, and then they look at the rubric and say, oh, there's a little bit of a difference, right? I used to think this, and now I think that's, that's an action habit that we actually want to develop, regardless of whether you're doing problem or project-based learning. But for us, it's like, if, if you're going to use a methodology like PBL, don't lose that part of it just because we built these rubrics. And Kelly and I have seen a lot of projects where the rubrics are like six to eight pages long. I'm thinking the teacher must be, you know, like passed out asleep because they spent so much time building a dissertation of rubrics when really it's just a little bit of a shift to say, you know, a C minus rubric that students know and use is way better than an A plus rubric that students don't use. And for us, it's like, let's move into action. And then the motion can follow a little bit over time. Mm. it's quite nice being in motion sometimes isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah it feels great. 
it's a nice phase to be in sometimes and it feels safe because you're not actually risking the thing yet and you're not actually kind of out of your of your comfort zone and I wonder there there is a certain safety that comes in that phase that you don't necessarily get in the action phase do you do you notice that coming up at all do you think that sort of fear I suppose is what it is um creates a barrier between that shift I certainly notice it. And I don't know if, um, I don't think it's always fear, but I do think it's often um, our brains, when we are in the calm space of planning, Mm -hmm. our prefrontal cortex is like full on. We can make great decisions. We can think big picture. We can think logically. We get into a stressful situation, like 36 kids coming into our classroom after lunch, sweaty, play, haven't just played soccer. And you have to get them like focused. Let's let's create our classroom culture once again. And you go back to all of the old stuff you used to do. And it's not necessarily out of fear, but it's out of like, I'm in a stressful situation. So I'm going to do what's safe today. Maybe tomorrow I'll I'll try doing the cool thing that I planned. I see that happen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would add, I think a lot of it's about the unknown. I mean, a big part of transfer level learning or in, in deep learning, when we think about, so so deep learning is this, one of the things we found in the research is that it's it's so much about social construction. You know, mm-hmm. it's about students being able to engage in classroom discussion, to evaluate and reflect on what their peers think or different perspectives, to be able to seek help from peers. And for a teacher, that can actually be pretty nerve wracking, right? Like, what are they going to say? And are they going to provide accurate information? If they don't, how do I adapt and pivot and be much more efficient for me if I just maybe present and I just tell them the information that they need and do a quick turn and talk and then kind of move on with my life. And I think when you're in those levels of high stress, I think, in, in, and then when you think about the uncontrolled nature of it, it's much better to say, I'll plan for that, um, but I don't know if I'll do it. And for us, it's about, we, we recognize that. And so what are small doable shifts that we could take to just get it started, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to do a giant 15 minute Socratic seminar but could we take that turn and talk and make it a little bit more complex? Um, could we try this for a few minutes? And even if the, the environment seems a little bit less structured than what we thought prior, um, we could try that. And then we could step back and say, okay, what did I take from that? What did I learn? So I could build that in as a habit for students so that they can engage in a higher level of, you know, that social construction that we're trying to go after. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that social construction piece because since we have come back from remote teaching and learning, especially mm-hmm. in our secondary schools, so here at grade six through 12, we just were so um, concerned because a lot of our students don't want to talk uh, for various reasons. And deep level learning, which is crucial, it is such an important part of any learning, but uh, for us, for project-based learning, it really does require usually you talking with somebody else or you writing with somebody else and I think the fear that comes up for teachers is, what if I plan this and nobody says anything? What if I rearrange my whole room so that we can have a fishbowl seminar and nobody talks? And that is a really scary feeling. So to Michael's point, finding small ways that we can build up to a more complex and a more significant conversation between students has been a really relevant challenge for us in the past few years, I think. Yeah. And I guess that ties us back in again to James Clear and that idea of 1% better. You know, yeah. how can you be 1% better tomorrow than than today? And that idea of just those tiny gains actually become quite significant over a period of time. Yeah. I think one of the things James Clear talks about in his book is this idea that we never rise to our goals, we fall to our systems, right? This idea of what are we doing day in, day out in terms of habits? And for, for I think for Kelly and I, the idea around the project habit is if we can just build those 1% habits of, of more, you know, effective turn and talks to actually teaching transfer where we look at different contexts, even if it's not a full-blown five to six week project that looks great, but students aren't engaging in those small doable habits. If we can get to those small doable habits, I just think we're going to see students that have a high level of efficacy. Um, we're gonna see high levels of learning and we're gonna see teachers that that can reasonably engage in these actions in a way that they think, hey, this is doable for me. Mm-hmm. And hey, I'm seeing those changes over time. And I think when you look at any great sports team, when you look at 
when you look at any great organization, that's what they do. They're looking at how do I get a little bit better each day, not how do we throw everything out and try to design something brand new. And I think that's the shift in this particular book and, and transferring some of that great learning from habit science that we can bring in. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me, how did you how did you go about identifying or selecting the the action habits that you've included? Because they're very practical. It's a good structure there. How did you go about that? I'll say we started with a very long list. And went, <laughs> this is actually not doable for teachers if we give them 29 things they need to do to be able to keep learning better. Um, so it, it took some conversation between Michael and I and some reflection. One of the things that really impacted um, where I weighed in on like, no, this is something we really need to like make one of our like standard habits is that during pandemic teaching and learning, I was in the classroom. So, so right now you're talking with Michael and I, Michael had this, he was deep in systems work. He was a superintendent of a school district. I was deep in the 30 kid, 36 kids that would come into my room uh, every, every period. And having to fall back on everything is different. I have some students in front of me. I have some students that are on a computer. My students are all English learners, which was an incredible gift. I loved working with them, but I had to be incredibly choosy about what parts of project-based learning and rigorous project-based learning are the ones that I am going to hold on to for this whole year to get us through and to make me and, and my students feel like this was worth it. This was worth our time in a really hard year. So that helped for me whittle down um, some of our most important habits. You'll notice that the word feedback is integrated into a few of our most important habits, especially in the action habits. Like your, your instruction needs to be aligned to surface. Your feedback needs to be aligned to surface. Your instruction needs to be aligned to deep. Your feedback needs to be aligned to deep. And that's something that I really relied on and saw great results from mm. when, I was, when I was in the classroom a couple of years ago. Michael, how else did we hone in on the ones that made the cut? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Um, so a couple of things, I think one is we went into the research, right? And we, we took a look at what are those things that make the most substantial impact on student learning? And we leaned on John Addy's visible learning work, um, Dylan Williams' work around embedded formative assessment. So while both have different research, you know, approaches to research and they still come to very similar conclusions. And that is that, and even the um, educational endowment um, just came out with a new synthesis of, of research just a few months ago. Yeah. And what we have found is that we need students to be, to have high levels of metacognition. They need to know where they're going and they're learning. They need to know where they are. They need to know what's next. That requires them to have a high level of clarity of, of what expectations are. That, you know, we need to have dollops of feedback. Um, we need to make sure that we are providing the right instruction at different levels of, of learning. So mm -hmm. it's really important to use direct instruction and we need to use it at certain times. And then we have to be mindful to set that down and then pick up other tools when, when it's necessary. And so we looked at, okay, given that research and then given that we teachers can only do so many practices, right? They, they have so many decisions they have to make each day. What are some of those strategies that we could use that would be high leverage across a, a, a level of a, you know, a unit of instruction? So for example, when we, in our book, we talk a lot about when you launch a project, instead of giving students one situation to look at, like we're going to save the wolves. Maybe what we could do is say, we're going to show them four situations and have students look at, hey, in these four situations, what do you think we might be learning about? So if I show the wolf situation and I show, you know, an invasive crab and I show like the, the boat or the pythons in Florida and say, what do you think might be going on? Students step back and they say, well, it seems like all of this has to do with either an animal coming in or an animal exiting an ecosystem. There must be a problem with balancing an ecosystem. And that's a level of transfer that we could do at the beginning of a unit that then students can step back and, and try to develop clarity. So in 2017, when I wrote Rigorous PBL, there were three key areas. It was, look, are students clear? Do we have challenge? Are we teaching at these three levels? And do we have a culture that helps with progress? And so I think that piece helped us look at the shifts. And then we looked at the research and then said, okay, let's just see what are some, what's our those leverage points that a teacher at the beginning of a unit could say, look, this connects the dots with teaching a transfer, providing feedback, developing clarity with a small doable shift. And I think that helps us. So we could say to a teacher, hey, you're teaching transfer right when you do that right now. 
and the, then a teacher can step back and say, oh, that's super doable. And that's what we were trying to go after. And I'll just share one last thing. John Hattie in 2020 came out right before COVID hit and said he looked at 17,000 classrooms and didn't see one example of teaching for transfer. And for us, for, for Kelly and I, we looked at that and said, I think people think it's too big. I think they treat transfer as like, oh, I need to do a project. So I'll do that after testing. We'll do that in June, <laughs> right? That, that, that'll be transfer month. And for us, it was like transfer could be a five minute practice with students to say, look at these two situations. How are they similar and different? So that was a big part of it too, is lower the threshold for design and for action and for inspecting our impact. That's high research and high leverage across all these different influences. That was the idea. And, and how do you move from that? Um, from motion habits into action habits, what what happens between one and the other? Is it a moment? Is it uh, uh, there's information, there's knowledge, there's what what happens? How do we get that shift? Yeah, um, I think I think one thing. So in a couple of our a couple of our practices, the, the last few practices, we really talk about how do we really transition from. Okay, I know I need to. I know that I need students to do more feedback than, than than I need students to work a little bit harder than me in terms of feedback. What can I do? And a couple of things for us is don't try to scale it all at once, right? So sprint it. Like say I'm gonna look. I'm gonna work with just in my English block, or I'm just gonna work of my seven period day. I'm gonna try third period, and I'm gonna try this particular feedback strategy for just for about five minutes. Or I'm going to stack what we call stacking, or what James Clear talks about stacking, where it's as I'm taking role, I'm gonna have students do a quick turn and talk. What do you think we're learning versus what are we doing? So when teachers think, okay, I don't have to scale it all at once and I can link it to something I'm already doing, those to us are the transition points. And that's where the coaching comes in of how do we lower the threshold so that when a teacher learns a new strategy, we have to work with them on, let's make this doable because almost every educator is a rescuer, right? If they find a strategy that's great, they're like, I wanna do this with everyone tomorrow. And a big part for us is don't do it all tomorrow. Try it with a few students, link it to something you already do, and then let's learn from that because no matter what, that strategy is not going to stand the test of your kids. You're going to have to change it, pivot. It's going to change in your context. And you'll want to learn that and know that and feel that before you look at scale. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think um, to add to that, something that we see in, in secondary schools is a lot of teachers that I work with will say, you know, I tried to sprint it. I tried to do something small with just um, three to five of my students to see if it was working. But then I found myself really distracted because I was trying to do this small thing with three to five kids. And I was doing the other thing that I more typically do with everyone else. Could I just do the same strategy with my whole class, all of my classes for a week, but really focus on the impact on those three or five kids so that I have evidence and I know, is this working or do I need to change it in the following week? And I'm really proud of the emphasis we've put on that in our book and in our practice of trust what the kids are showing you. Don't, don't take our word for it that if you do the strategy exactly as it appears with six bullet points, it's going to work every time. As, as educators, it is so important that we inspect it and go, did this work for my students when I did it this way? What do I need to change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we can be, uh, we can find it quite hard to bring things down into small small and manageable can't we because I think we always want to go slightly bigger or we we think it's small but really it's still quite big and oh, we always have so that. often <laughs> yes yeah there, Sarah there's a there's a great part in I think it was in James's book but it might have been on a podcast I listened to where um, you know the heaviest the heaviest weight in a gym is the front door yes. and there's this one and there's this one guy who was trying to get fit and all he did is he walked through the front door and then he walked out and he did that for like a month. He just walked in the front door and then walked out as opposed to thinking, I got to go in and I got to lift weights for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's that 1% idea. Right. And, and it's, it's really, and it's so hard for educators, I think to do two things. One, it's that 1% idea. And mm -hmm. two, it's to trust that they, it's to trust themselves. Sometimes it's like, trust yourself, like try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean you're not right. It means that contextually, and I really like what Kelly had said, that it's not, it's not working like this in this class. So you either need to make that change or drop that tool and pick up another tool. We may not be right on that, right? I think the, the criteria of giving, having students work harder and feedback is right, but the solution may need to be augmented or changed. And we only do that if we test it a little bit and then say, okay, now that works for me. And then they can sustain it and then students can sustain it. Because our, our hope is that 
if something is effective, they can sustain this. You know, at the, you know, I always think of like, so for us in the US, we, we are in California, we, we call May like the hundred days of May, super hard. It's so <laughs> long. So I'm thinking, okay, Friday, third week of May. So, you know, day, you know, 64 in two thirty in your last period, are you, are you going to be able to do that? And if you're like, no way, then it's never going to be doable, right? It's got to be in that the most exhausted moment to say, I can do that. And if you can do that, great, then it can sustain. Yeah. And another part of that, Michael, is making it easy, right? We we read James Clear writes about that in his book. And um, I think a, a barrier that teachers will put in front of themselves is I need to have the perfect, when I'm thinking about success criteria, for example, I need to have the perfect bulletin board or the perfect slide with, you know, 18 points of reference on there for students to look at and for me to look at for success criteria. And it didn't, I didn't really like the way it worked in my last project or unit. So I need to revamp it for the next one. Instead of finding something that makes it so easy for you as a teacher and so easy for students to see a simple slide with three bullet points and note, that's where I'm going today. It's not elaborate and it, it maybe doesn't even have uh, moving pictures on it, but it helps students and teachers go, it's always here. I can always reference it. I know what I'm supposed to do with this. I found that that has really um, improved my practice as a teacher when I find things that I can go exit tickets. They're always already cut up. They're right by the door. We use them on our way out or we use them on our way in for entrance tickets. I made it so easy that like I'd have to stumble upon it if I forgot that it was right by the door. Yeah. Um, I think you've maybe touched on something else as well there. Do you, do you think it's maybe a big question for today, but do you think we have tendencies towards perfectionism as uh, teachers? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, think we all, I think we all do. And I think we see it in our emotion habits. Yeah. Right? And I think yeah. that the, I think that the fundamental challenge of particularly in deep to transfer level learning is there's no place for perfectionism there. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And it really is a little bit, a little bit messier. Um, it doesn't mean you can't structure things really well and you can't engage in really effective conversations, but the perfectionism is actually, it actually comes through the dialogue, but yes, we definitely have those tendencies. And so I think the idea is then let's start small. And let's go 1%. And let's name it to say, I have a perfectionist tendency. Uh, yeah. That's why I just spent, you know, hours and hours building a new project. And it's like, well, let's just start with some small doable shifts in our practice and see how that's going. And what are we seeing from students? I mean, John, John Hattie's coming out with his uh, new visible learning next month. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is, or in an interview about the book is he's, he's gotten rid of the league table. He, he's like, we're not going to use the checklist. We're not going to use the rankings anymore. It's about knowing our impact. And how do we respond to that impact? And to me, I think it's, that can be challenging for us because it, because there's that judgment of like, well, what happens if the impact's not as successful as we want? And I think let's lower the threshold as much as possible. What was the impact on this one strategy I tried with students? How did that change their thinking? What does that mean for me next? And I think that the more we can focus our narrative there, I just think the more powerful we'll see teachers engage in more innovative work and say, okay, I gave that thing a go and I tried it, but it's gotta be, we've gotta lower it down. Yeah. Gosh, you're making me think of an epilogue. We should have written that perfection is action, or maybe perfection is impact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Redefining perfection if we're so so bent on it as teachers. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked about we've touched on a number of um things, I guess, there that help us as individuals to to move into action and to take those build those habits and um, are there any kind of enabling conditions that you've you've come across or you notice that really help at a more at a system level so at, at a school level rather than just the individual level to build those action habits yeah i i mean i'll i'll, I'll share a few I, I think one is i think leaders have to really think through this whole notion of scale. Mm -hmm. I think that they have to really be focusing on the conversion between I know something, let's go try it, and being willing to go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. I think that's just such a really such an important part for leaders to say, you've got to throw, you've got to slow down. Um, Michael Fullen once said there's too, sometimes leaders can have too much of a moral imperative. We can say, mm -hmm. oh, we've got to get this done today. And so we try to mm -hmm. throw everything at people. And then what happens is we get so anxious, we then plan it. Yeah. instead of instead of acting so to me it's lowering the threshold to get started think 
think start before scale. How do I start things and stack them? And then once we've got those systems in place, then we can say, okay, now is there a place for scale? And what does that scale process look like? I think that is a key enabling condition is that a leader has to be able to, to think through, we're going to go slow. We're going, and that's going to allow us to speed up later. Mm-hmm. This idea of staying small and staying focused. I think let's just look at a, a look at a few things. So one, our students with us when we're doing the great things that we're doing is such a powerful mantra that, that teachers need to have because they could be doing a million great things. But if students are caught up on the context, so let's just imagine, you know, we're, we're teaching solid liquids and gases and the students are thinking about slime because they just did a lab on slime. It doesn't matter what the teacher's doing, right? Because the students, are not, they're, not, they're not with the teacher. And I think it's more about getting that input and saying, let's just look at that small little shift to me are key enabling conditions. And I think that starts with leadership. I think leaders have to have that mantra. They have to share that out to say, we're focusing on small doable habits. I think when leaders do that, I think that teachers, and I think, look, all of us have these perfectionistic tendencies. I think we all have them as humans. I think that, I think teachers, you know, have them at this, at this particularly higher level in some ways. And leaders have to say, look, I actually want to celebrate the gifts of imperfection. And I want to start that by small doable shifts. Yeah, Michael, you're saying that has me thinking about the importance of psychological safety in organizations. I, I'm a yeah. big fan of Amy Edmondson's book from a few years ago, The Fearless Organization. And um, after that, I, I, anytime I see psychological safety in research or other books, I, you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to it because I think the importance of leaders telling their teachers, it's okay to fail here. It's okay to try something and for it not to work. We learn something from that. And it is okay for, to try something and for it to be fantastic. But alongside that psychological safety where, where hey, go try something, go have a great time, go mess up. And we want you to do that is, is this idea of accountability as well. Um, and that might be one small thing that teachers go, okay, if, if I have identified success criteria for my students, I've done the one thing that my my school, my site administrator or my director said, you need to do this. And everything else that I do, as long as I'm trying it and I'm learning from it, I'm doing the right thing. And in addition to that, I think um, as we can't talk about inspecting our impact without protecting time for teachers to inspect their impact. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that might mean that you you protect a 30 minute conversation once a month or a 30 minute conversation at the end of the week so that teachers have permission to not um, work on the field trip, plan the next unit, uh, do their grades, which are all very important things. You gotta keep the train running, but protecting time for teachers to say, okay, this is the time where we get together and we might, we might not even sit down. We might just stand and look around the circle at one another and say, I tried this thing, here was my impact. I'm gonna try it differently next week. I think that's really crucial for leaders and organizations yeah and you think you've touched on an important um, or a common challenge and barrier in schools is around time and how we magic up more time I suppose (laughs) it is like the big currency in schools is time how many minutes can we give to this yeah yeah and and I think two other quick enabling conditions I think around time and I think it goes back to leaders is separating meetings so having lean meetings to say like, this is a meeting for planning, this is a meeting for motion. And then another meeting to say, this is from motion to action. So we're gonna inspect our impact. And, and I would say that in my recent reading and, and my learning around this particular kind of work, it's, it's focusing more on process um, and small a accountability as uh, more so than outcomes. So how did it go implementing the action? What have we learned from implementing the action? As, as opposed to, did we get to where we wanted to be? Um, I think that the more we focus on our system of habits and talk through that, um, I think that what that does is that reduces a fear. It focuses on this incentive of action to say, hey, that's really actually what we're trying to celebrate and look through. And then through that, we can then pivot to say, okay, and what was the impact of these particular actions? But I think a lot around process accountability and I mean that like in a lowercase a, not like, you know, let's let's get a form and let's check to see if people did it, but more on like, what did we learn? You know, as Kelly was sharing earlier, like I did this with five students, but then I said, look, I got to do it with everybody, but I'm still going to look at these five. Okay, what did we learn as you scaled it across that? To me, I think teachers like to hear other teachers on that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then there are those times where we say, okay, let's step back from, okay, we implemented this, this is what we learned. Okay, now what was the outcome for students? And I think pivoting between process and then just overall outcome accountability um, is, is something that I think is an important enabling condition. Yeah, and, and it creates that feedback loop as well, doesn't it? Which then means, and that can often be motivating because you start to see the impact of what you're, what you're doing both individually and collectively as a, as a team or as a, as a school. Yeah, 100%. I think you can then, if, if we do that right, we can have students do that too. Yeah. Right. And, and I think the more we get students to inspecting their habits, because, you know, the interesting part about this, it's the same thing, right? I mean, students do motion and action habits. I mean, how many students do we have that retype their notes instead of writing the essay that they need to? Or how many students, you know, they, they, they prepare to do the work, but they don't do it. They don't turn it in, even though they did the work. <laughs> like there's, and I think the more we invite students into this conversation, I think the more powerful it becomes. I think students being able to understand motion versus action is is really important. I mean, my my kids do a really great job in motion of watching me and my wife do the dishes. Right, we're in action and they're in motion. They're like, you're doing great, right? Like for them to be like, so let's put you into action, right? <laughs> Together, I think could be really powerful. <laughs> on so many levels and I think that's what's perhaps appealing to so many people at the moment this the, the work of particularly James Clear's work around atomic habits is we can apply it to every aspect of our life it's the same principles across everything so it it can help us in so many different ways and I think the way in which you have taken those principles um, and applied them in the context of of PBL and thinking about the way we work as teachers and the way we work as schools is um well, that's genius, really. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks, Sarah. We, we, appreciate, we appreciate hearing that. I mean, it was a, a, a very influential book for, to, for both of us. And we thought this would be a way to bring more educators into a conversation we think that they want to have. And hopefully it will also spread outside of, of problem project-based learning in terms of how do, we, how do we develop students' agency, which obviously is embedded within a methodology, but it's something that we hopefully will go into developing student agency or feedback or direct instruction or whatever it might be. So thank you. Yeah, I, I as I'm sitting here having the conversation, I'm already imagining various people that I know that listen to the podcast with all those kind of um, little light bulbs going off and, and moments where they have to stop and write things down as they're as they're listening to this, because I think there's so much relevance and so much practical um ideas that people can take away from from the conversation but also from from the book as well um so thank you thank you for sharing a little bit more about um project habit and we will make sure that the link and all the details um and ways to connect with you are in the the episode notes for today's conversation but um yeah just thank you so much for for bringing such a practical insightful conversation and making that real clarity of distinction between motion and action and how it can can hold us still but also how it can really help us to move it forward so I'm very grateful thank you thank you absolutely Sarah thank you but before we go uh we ask all of our podcast guests the same two questions so for my, my first question um and I'll come to you first again Kelly if I can is what are you reading at the moment well, I'm in a doctoral program, so I'm reading a lot of peer-reviewed research on <laughs> adolescent literacy. I'm also going through my copy of The Knowledge Gap, Natalie Wexler's book. I listen to it on audio. I have all of these notes saved in my Audible app, and so I'm going back into the book and highlighting where they are on paper. It's kind of a reread. I love it. Yeah, brilliant. And Michael, what about you? It's funny. I, I'm I'm not in a, in a like a research program, but uh, the, the I have two articles that I'm reading right now that uh, I just find absolutely fascinating. One is uh, called "Building the Expert Teacher Prototype: A Meta Summary of Teacher Expertise Studies in Primary and Secondary Education" it's by Anderson and Tanner. And to me, I'm super fascinated by the idea of how do we improve the efficacy and performance of expert teachers. And I think that, and we write about this a little bit in our book, but this idea of moving from deliberate practice to deliberate deviation from practice, like how do we make small, subtle shifts in the practices that we have? And how do we really support our expert teachers in making sure they're getting the growth that they, that, that they, that they deserve and that they need? And so, so that's one. The other one is, um, it's a research study called Teacher Self-Efficacy and Pupil Achievement, Much Ado About Nothing. 
uh, and it's about, and it's, and it's, it's our, it's, it's really a study about the confusion that we sometimes have as educators between correlation and causation when we think of efficacy and student achievement. And this study shows that there's not a causal um, effect between teacher efficacy and student achievement. And so it's pretty interesting. What does that, what does that mean for us as leaders and teachers that while both of those two constructs are important, one might not necessarily lead to the other. And what are the impacts of that? So to me, those are those are the two um, those are the two studies I'm reading and taking taking notes on right now. Mm, excellent, thank you. Um, yeah. And uh, do you have a quote or a message that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure, I'll I'll, I'll start. Um, I, I before we got on this podcast, I was thinking about there's a there's a great there's a great article from Atul Gawande. And I think in like 2003, where he talks about the speed of innovation and he talks about mm -hmm. how innovation actually, the, that certain things carry faster than others. And he talks about hand-washing and how hand-washing is still a strategy, it's still an innovation that's difficult to, to implement because it's an action-based action uh, innovation. Whereas things like hand-washing signs uh, that that spread pretty quickly, um, right? That's pretty easy to you know put up on a window. And so I guess the, I guess the takeaway message is we're, you know, while our actions speak louder than our words, words travel faster and they become sticky, but they don't necessarily cause change in our actions. And so the innovation, the speed of innovation varies between motion and action. And we need to focus on small doable action habits. Those are the things that are going to make the change. And to me, the, the realm where innovation is today and, and where we could really take the lead is 1% of action-based habits tomorrow. It's going to be so much more, um, impactful than a than a hundred percent on motion habits. So there's 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 the takeaway. Excellent, thank you. And Kelly. Yeah, mine comes from Bruce Lee. Research your own experience. Uh, it's something I always tell teachers when I when I have when I have a minute to tell them. That's what I tell them. Uh, I, I know that that is really what helped me. Uh, it's what helped professional learning pay off for me. Was taking what I was learning and. Uh, going in and trying it with my own students and seeing does it work and talking about it with colleagues and um, it's it's certainly what I want teachers to do whenever like Michael or I are working with them I'm like yes this is this is good it's based in research we did our homework and we've we've judged a lot of this based on our own experience but take it back to your classroom and research what happens with your own students and your own bell schedule and your own content area and that, that's what I always always walk away with research your own experience from Bruce Lee. Excellent. Thank you. And so powerful to do as well when it's relevant to you and it has that clarity of purpose. Thank you both once again. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank Thanks, you. Sarah. Thank you. It's been great. That was fun. Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us. And we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.